bitches, it's me, Jono. And today I have with me the director and author, Sam Irving. Welcome. Hey, hey, hey. how are you, Jono? It's so good to see you and uh, be on your show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. How are you? I am busy. Uh, busier than I've ever been in my entire career, actually. <laughs> I've been... Uh, directing a lot of movies this year uh i just finished my fifth one and uh on monday uh this would have been um of this week what date was that let's see uh, 21st. November, yeah the 21st november 21st of 2022 for those who might be listening to this archived and I start another movie in two weeks on December 5th. <laughs> that will be my sixth movie in this calendar year. It'll finish just before Christmas. And then I have a seventh one that starts right after the beginning of the year. So that's going to add up to seven movies in 11 months, which is an all-time high for me. <laughs> and at age uh, 66, I, I never thought I'd be, you know, breaking my own records at this at this stage of my career. And it's pretty, pretty freaking amazing. But I feel like a kid. And by the way, 66 is 18 Celsius, so I'm barely legal. <laughs> and, and I feel that way, man. Uh, but also, not only did I finish this film on Monday, but it was my 50th movie. Uh, so I'm really excited. And we were celebrating that milestone. And on the very same day, I also published my fourth book, and uh, I'm really proud of that. And yeah. so it was quite a day, let me tell you. Uh, my new book is called I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter, How I Met Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and more. All of my 1970s bizarre fanzine interviews and all the, uh, the jaw-dropping dish behind them. And it's, uh, it's an amazing journey it's part memoir of my gay coming of age as a as a horror movie geek but also uh and it's part a collection of the interviews that i conducted with horror horror film royalty back in those days when i was a teenager publishing a little fanzine called bizarre and uh everybody you know all everybody i interviewed um there's there's like 35 interviews that are time capsules in this book the book is 352 pages, 600 photographs, 200,000 words. It has a foreword by my dear friend, Cassandra Peterson, who is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. I directed her in Elvira's Haunted Hills, and we've been pals for 30 years. And she very graciously did the foreword for this. And um, it's just a really, really exciting project and something that's really heartfelt. Um, I'm really excited to announce that 100% of the profits from this book are going to the Trevor, the Trevor Project, which is the great um, support organization for LGBTQ plus youth. And, uh, and it's one of Cassandra Peterson's favorite charities as well. And so we're, we're really excited to be raising money for that organization. It's, in, it's available in hardback, paperback. And um, next week will be coming out as an audiobook as well. The audiobook is 21 hours. Uh, and Cassandra Peterson narrates her forward. 
and I narrate in the first person all of my memoir bits and all of the interview questions that we're recreating from, from the 70s. And in some cases, I got some of the people that I interviewed way back then to, to come in and recreate their interview questions, like Jane Seymour, Stephanie Beecham uh, from Dynasty and the Colbys, and, uh, and a whole bunch of other people. And then for those uh, interviewees who passed away, like Diana Rigg, for instance, um, I got Juliette Mills to come in and do her. They had actually performed together on the London stage um, years ago. And Maxwell Caulfield voices some of them. Olivia Dabo voices two Ingrid Pitt interviews that I did. And uh, and Julie Brown, my dear friend Julie Brown, uh, even comes in to narrate the the little bio, my little bio, author bio at the end of the book. <laughs> so there's all kinds of great voices on the audio book too. So um, anyway, enough enough plugging, but uh, I, I obviously am very excited about it, and it's for a good cause. You can get all, all of this. You can get on Amazon, and the audio book will be on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. That's amazing. I cannot wait to order mine right now and <laughs> listen because I am an Audible subscriber. So I'm definitely be yes. able to listen to that. It's a 21 hour. That's going to keep me busy for a little bit. <laughs> it will keep you busy, but I think you're going to be surprised. It's really funny. Some of the escapades that I go through are pretty wild and sometimes it gets a little sexy and there's all kinds of surprises and i don't know you'll you know i don't want to give away anything but you're not going to be disappointed <laughs> that's really exciting because i i me personally i collect your interviews that you've done some of them um, with um cassandra peterson who is my idol yes her. some of the like i have uh i think three of your interviews that you've done with her and wow that's it's so like, great just listening to like the way that you guys are able to communicate like you can tell that there is like a personal relationship that you guys have but there's also yes. something that's special that you have with your interviews that you're able to get something out of them and in, in a comfortable manner where it's just like you get to have like that personal side from them and that's yeah. something that's really enjoyable as a fan that's something that I really get to like oh there's something that you like not from the standard interview questions you go a little yeah. bit more deeper with things and that's something that's that's something that I cherish as a collector oh that's very sweet to hear well Cassandra and I are such pals and we have so much in common and our common interests and everything that yeah, you get us talking and we can't stop. And it's it's just very comfy. And and that's always the best kind of situations for an interview because, and I would try to ask her questions that as, you know, I'm her, I'm her one of her closest friends, but I'm also a super fan. So I've read a ton of interviews with her, but there's certain questions that she had never been asked. And I always want to, I always want to think about what, what do I want to know as a super fan and especially a horror super fan. Yeah. And, um, so that last the last interview I did with her was for the Dark Side magazine a year a year ago, and it very I'm very proud that it won the Rondo Award for Best Interview of the Year. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, I was thinking, you know what? No one's. They, she always talks about Vincent Price. We both were really good, became really good friends with Vincent Price. Um, I even, I mean, and I talk about in my book that I mean. I mean, we practically had a love affair. It was it was ultimately unrequited, but it was it was a it was a 
long-term love affair over a period of 25 years, really. Wow. And, uh, and I go into great detail about it. Um, but, she, but she's talked about her, you know, her, her relationship with, with Vinny and, um, that but was her no, idol. Yes. Total idol. Both of us were the first horror movies we ever saw. Hers was House on Haunted Hill, the Vincent, you know, both Vincent Price movies. And mine was Pit and the Pendulum. Mm-hmm. And it was the seminal event that made us, you know, crave horror movies. And it, yeah, there you go. And Pit and <laughs> the Pendulum, obviously, I got to spoof in Elvira's Haunted Hills by putting Elvira on a slab under a pendulum. I mean, how <laughs> incredible was that? I mean, it's it's just nutty. Um, but at any rate, for that interview last year in The Dark Side, I wanted to ask her about other horror stars. Like, did you ever meet Christopher Lee? And she was like, you know what? No one's ever talked about that. Yes, I did meet him by complete accident. I was walking out of my manager's house and I was walking down the street and they were filming a movie at the house where they shot the house on Haunted Hill, that historic house in the Hollywood Hills. I forget the name of it, but it was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. And she said they were making a movie there and there was nobody, no guards or anything. And she just decided to wander up and walked in the door and ran right into Christopher Lee. And it turns out it was the Howling 2. Okay. <laughs> and she talked to him. He had no idea who Elvira was. <laughs> this was in the mid 80s, I guess. And, uh, you know, he lives in England and Elvira hadn't really uh, become huge in England at that point. So it's kind of understandable. But uh, they just had a, like a normal conversation and that's how she met him. And, you know, things like that, I just find so wild and fascinating. And so those are the kinds of things that I try to ask her when I'm around. And you've directed a film with Cassandra Peterson, like you just mentioned, with Elvira's Haunted Hills. And you know yes. that was that was like when you paying homage to how she talks about in the commentary of using those old horror films and making a spoof with it. I grew up watching those uh, horror films as well, and then seeing those intertwine like those little like one liner jokes that come with it. Like if you listen to the fine details of that, that's like it's like oh my god, like horror movie porn <laughs> in a way. Like when you see like all yeah, those little... exactly. Yeah, well, it's 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 our homage to the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe, Roger Corman movies of the '60s, like Pit in the Pendulum, The House of Usher, The Haunted Palace, Tomb of Lygia, all of those. And but it's also there are other, of course, many, many, many other horror films that get a nod here and there throughout the movie. We, there's a there's homages to the Fearless Vampire Killers, the Polanski movie with Sharon Tate, and uh, you know, gosh, the The Shining. Even there's a there's an old an old innkeeper who has to throw them out of his inn, uh, throw Elvira and her and her French maid Zuzu out for not paying the rent and uh they have the door locked and he uses an axe to come through the door and in his romanian transylvania accent he's like here's your <laughs> <laughs> and you know that's right that's that's classic jack nicholson with you know here's johnny um and you know we just had so much fun with it it was made uh, uh 22 years ago um Last year we were celebrating the you know anniversary edition that came out on Blu-ray and we did a 
new introduction for it. And we have a whole bunch of extras on the Blu-ray that came out last year, which was really thrilling and fun and introducing it to a whole new generation of people who, you know, it's kind of a, it's, it's a little bit of a cult film. It didn't get the exposure that the first Elvira film had when, you know, the first Elvira film open theatrically but the company that was releasing it new world pictures was going under right at that time and it kind of didn't get the promotion it needed but then it was financed by nbc tv and a couple of years after that nbc ran the film on a friday night and it was seen by something like 10 million people in one night and that's you know what really um made that film such an iconic um, film in people's minds. I mean, just so many people saw it. Well, we've, we've never had that kind of break for Elvira's Haunted Hills. So not, not nearly as many people have seen it. So this, this new Blu-ray release last year and finally starting to get um, streamed on Tubi uh, is finally introducing it to a lot of people that didn't even really know it existed. So um, it's almost like a new film and it doesn't age in any way because um, it, it takes place in the 1800s, uh, whereas the, the first Elvira film takes place in the 80s when it was made. And so it does it does date in a different way. I mean, ours is kind of timeless. That is kind of, you know, set. It's kind of a time capsule of, of sort of 80s sort of style. Um so, yeah, I mean, some people, you know, said, oh, I thought you just made this movie. I'd never heard of it. And, you know, it looks great. And so, yeah, I think it's, a, you know, newly it's being I, I want to say it's being rediscovered, but it's actually being discovered <laughs> by a lot of people yeah. for the very first time. I love it. It's definitely one of my favorites. I watch all year. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and people tend to love it. Uh, you know, of course, in Halloween season and uh i've been shooting several films in louisville kentucky and um there's a there's a, a organization called the gore club it's a horror horror film club that shows two movies every sunday night at a local bar and the bar i love the name of the bar it's called planet of the tapes and the walls are are like the frames around the windows and all the molding around the walls and everything are just rows and rows and rows of VHS videotapes being recycled as 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 architectural art. Yeah, <laughs> so awesome. it's called Planet of the Tapes, and it's you know it's run by you know film geeks like us, and and they do different themes on different nights. But Sunday night is the horror night, and they hosted um, an Elvira night where they showed Elvira's Haunted Hills first since I'm old and need to get to bed. And then they showed the first movie of our Mistress of the Dark later, you know, in the wee hours of the morning. And, uh, but I came in and did a Q&A and we actually talked through it, kind of like uh, Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> and uh, it was, it was so much fun. It was great. And they had, they had a big crowd there. It was really, it was a really fun night. But those kinds of things happen all the time now. And it's it's very gratifying to know that the film is is alive or it's alive and well and kicking even after 22 years. Yeah, I haven't done any recently, but I think maybe like 10 years ago there used to be like this um here in Los Angeles they used to do like cult movies like on the weekends type of thing 
And mm-hmm. that was so much fun. You get to meet a lot of fun people that just are yeah. into the same movies that you're into. And yeah. like, even like, like it's kind of related to the, like the Rocky Horror Picture people. Yeah. Like, they have their own club. <laughs> but, you know, having like those people that just love horror movies, like the cult movies. Yeah. And going to them and meeting those people and just like screaming and yelling and making your own inside jokes of some of the scenes that you get to see there. It's fun. Well, the Rocky Horror fans are serious fans. And I mean, they kind of they kind of started the whole the whole genre of this with the Rocky Horror Picture Shows kind of taking off for midnight shows and people coming in costume and all that from way back in the 70s. And um, and we have a, a huge crossover um, of those fans with Elvira's Haunted Hills because the Vincent Price role in Elvira's Haunted Hills is played by Richard O'Brien of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. He played Riff Raff in Rocky Horror Picture Show, but some people don't, don't even realize he wrote Rocky Horror. He wrote the play that it started as, and he wrote the music, he wrote the lyrics, he wrote the libretto for the play, he wrote the screenplay when it was made into a movie. I mean, he is Mr. Rocky Horror, and what a brilliant guy he is. So funny. He's the original non-binary person. I don't know how he actually describes, I don't don't know if that's the label he uses. I mean, we didn't have that label back in those days. But, you know, when he was when he was writing songs and and his whole play of Rocky Horror about, you know, transvestite from Transylvania, it, it was a personal story for him. I mean, he is everything and anything and everything. I mean, the man has had breast implants because he wanted to see what that was like. Um, he's had them removed. I mean, he just, he just, just flew it. I mean, you don't know what's going on with him. Uh, with his with with his experimentation and with his identity and all he's um, he's had two or three at least two or two wives that I know of he's currently married to a woman he lives in New Zealand Uh, he has grown kids and grandkids but he's very open about his bisexuality and his everything and I mean I just think anything goes with him and I'm I find it very inspiring that someone who was, you know, coming out of the growing up in the seventies of all times when it was, you know, queer was not accepted back then and it was still illegal and it was, you still got put in jail for, for same sex activities. I mean, it's just, it's amazing that he was such an incredible trailblazer way back then i mean people forget the rocky horror picture show came out in 1974 and the play was on on the london stage in 1973 i mean it was still being gay was still considered a mental illness in this country until the end of 1973 when the psychiatric association finally took that off their books and isn't that crazy that you know it's not that long ago you know i know it was not that long ago and you know, I'm old enough where I lived through all of that. And it's just, you know, when I saw a Rocky Horror Picture Show, it was absolutely shocking as an, you know, it was a closeted gay kid. And, and it was just, it was so groundbreaking and so out there and so in your face and so everything. It was just like, whoa. So, I mean, I, I just give all props to, to Richard O'Brien. I mean, he is, 
he he doesn't have the kind of respect that I think he deserves from our community for for being you know the granddaddy of just blowing down the doors and just saying fuck you all we are coming out and with yeah. a vengeance and i mean there was no pussyfooting around i mean that was that movie was just crazy it's funny that you say that how it was so shocking for you um i remember my mom bought it for me when i was it was like the, the 90s and she goes oh watch this movie watch this movie you'll like it and so I watched it and, you know, like she was, oh yeah, he's, you know, he's going to get freaked out. Like when he sees everything coming out and everything, I was like, I was like, oh yeah, hey girl. You know, like <laughs> it was, it was like more, cause it was the nineties and it was more, more accepting of everything. Yeah. And it, yeah. it was, um, di- I experienced it differently than, you know, like every, everything else. Cause we had RuPaul on and television and, yeah, and yeah. ads in the mall. You know, and, yeah, it wasn't and, it wasn't shocking by the by the 90s. But I'm telling you, in 1974, I mean, I was afraid to for my parents to see any of it for mm-hmm. fear that they would, you know, go, what the f- what the hell is this? You know, you mm-hmm. can't watch this stuff. This is perverted, you know, or whatever. And I mean, it was it was like, whoa, I finally found my tribe. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know i was just it was astonishing it really was i mean you know there was there were seminal things back in those days where you know anytime something a little gay happened in a movie or whatever it was always like you you know you had to go tell your 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 other secret closeted gay friends like oh my god did you see the naked wrestling scene between oliver reed and alan bates and women in love it's like no really yes we gotta we gotta try to get into that movie and you know (laughs) those kinds of things back then it was like it was huge it reminds me of when oprah would she talks about how seeing diana ross and the supremes on you know back in 1964 on ed sullivan it would be like all the black people would be calling each other up going there's black people on tv you know and 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 she jokes about it but it's what it's what was going on back in those days it was just it didn't happen and uh we were so starved for any any kind of representation, and uh, you know, man, Rocky Horror was a, a milestone. It was a turning point. It really, really was. And say it again. It, it wasn't that long ago, you know. No, it, it wasn't. It, it's not not even like a generational thing. It's 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 to be a person that grew up in the '90s, basically taking that for granted, that shock value, and. Yeah. To, to hear like how it when it actually came out like you know a couple decades before yeah and how it's not like this that that um shock factor because you know yeah. it was when it was brand new and the times that we're living in and granted yeah. times have gotten better it's gotten getting a little scary right now but you know it <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it is it's it's weird how the pendulum you know keeps swinging and we're you know every time we think we're out of the woods it's just you know it's i mean you you have to compare it to things like when obama was president it's like whoa i in my opinion at least we suddenly have the greatest president ever in our country who also happens to be an african-american which was a humongous first and it was like wow have we finally turned a corner with racism and we're finally you know it's just like in on so many levels 
I was lulled into thinking that, wow, we've made it. This is so incredible. We're going to, we finally are going to be able to move forward in such a positive way and such loving and open and accepting and everything. And then the other shoe dropped and the pendulum went to the other extreme. And I will refuse to use his name, but we go from the greatest president of all time to it's just saying the worst president of all time doesn't even begin to cut it. It's like, are you, I don't know if we can use four letter words, but you can go ahead, go ahead. We we can do whatever we want. Okay. I mean, they're just in, in my wildest imagination. I cannot even imagine how anything could have been so fucked up. And it's just, it, I mean, there are no words to describe how far the pendulum went back the other way and how the, the latent closeted racism of this country suddenly felt emboldened to, to come to rage forth in defiance of, of what they had had to bite their tongues about for the years that Obama was in office. I mean, it just... It, it, the pendulum went so far the other way. It's just it's and it's still going. It just feels like it's just shooting across the universe with this velocity of vengeance that just I just don't even know how. I don't even know how we come back from it. It's so it's so horrifically awful. Yeah, um, and it, it, looking at things that in the climate that we're in today, I think I'm just growing up as a Californian and a, a kid that grew up in what I thought was you know progressive times. I would never have thought that, you know, middle America would be so blatantly racist. And, yeah, and, racist, and I never homophobic and, and anti-feminist. I mean, yeah. on every freaking level, there is no awareness or education in so much of this country. I mean, there are, you know, it, it feels like half the country has like had their brain lobotomized or something Mm -hmm. it's like you know they're voting for people who are actually taking money away from them who actually want to get rid of things like social security and they don't want them to get you know free health care and all this and they're and and half the country is going yay let's vote for that because we don't want health care we don't want money when we're old and we don't want any of this we just want to go against you liberals it's like this rabid dog with rabies who just has lost their minds and they're doing everything to undermine and destroy their themselves. It's like during COVID, it's like you, you're, you're not going to get vaccine. Well, first of all, your president was rushing to develop a vaccine and your president took the vaccine. So I don't know what kind of planet you're on now to say that you don't want the vaccine, but guess what? The people who didn't get the vaccine were the vast majority of the numbers of the over 1 million people who died of it. So in what universe does that logic play out? It's just like, you know what? I think if, if, if we're, if we're on that side of the aisle and we just don't take the vaccine, then 
we're going to die from it, which will be less voters for our side. And that way, the liberals are all going to get elected again because there won't be any of us left because we're all going to die. Well, that's a good game plan, people. <laughs> you just keep up. You just keep up with that. We're really happy for you. Go just do your thing and and make sure that you all pass away from this disease because we don't need you here. Seriously. <laughs> it's funny I mean, that you God. say that. It's funny that you say that because on Facebook, I had to take off uh, a comment because I got a lot of hate from it. And granted, a lot of people died. But I, I said I, I said something to the effect of natural selection. Yes. And, and, I mean and and everybody, I got a lot of hate from it, and I, Facebook threatened to deactivate my account from that from that comment. But it, in in a way, it's kind of true because these um, I, I, people who are who are not in, in in line with the thinking of human human beings, the rights for humankind, and people who who want to eliminate that and go backwards. I think that's a subspecies and those people aren't, you know, like on the road to progression. There's a huge division in culture and in humans <laughs> kind that has like, you know, you have these people that want to go backwards and then you have people that want to go forward. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of like when you, when a parallel, when you look at it, like the Flintstones and Jetsons and the, how they're both living <laughs> in that same world, it, yeah. it, it looks like the same thing. Yeah. It's just, it's just, I mean, we could go on for days, but it's just amazing to me that that people get to the point where they they're just not even thinking logically. Like logic is right out the window. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, there we you know the the vaccine it might be risky. There's one over a million people died of this disease. There's not one person who's died of the vaccine. Yeah. Yes, the vaccine might have some long-term effects, might have some whatever, but, but all vaccines it's better, have something. It's better than dying, and yeah. everything is a risk, people. Everything. Do you drive a car? Do you walk out on the street every day? Do you ever eat fattening food? Do you ever smoke a cigarette? Do you ever take alcohol? I mean, everything we do is a risk. So get over this bullshit about the vaccine being a risk. It's like vaccines have over the years <laughs> saved so many lives from polio and all these diseases that were eradicated. And now with the anti-vax movement, these diseases are raging back and, and creating more threats again. It's like, I, I just, you know, I, I just don't even understand how to wrap my heads around it. And, and then you have people who think that the government is implanting some kind of chips in you when they <laughs> give you these things. Okay. First of all, could you explain to me the narcissistic attitude that you have that your life is so important that you think that there's this team of, of government agents who are watching your every move and what you have for lunch and what size your turds are in your bathroom. It's like... <laughs> I, you have a very inflated view of how important your life is. That's just maybe a little exaggerated. <laughs> it's like if the government's interested in what I'm doing day to day, hour by hour, have at it. I don't care if I have a chip in me. I don't give a fuck. I don't believe that I have a chip in me. I don't believe any of that, you know, cuckoo stuff. 
But it's like, what are they worried about? And if they are doing something that's so illicit, what are they murdering and eating people? Are they worried that they're going to get caught of something just so heinously awful that they that they're just scared or they're paranoid about every little thing? I mean, come on, people, get a life. It's like it's like, wow, I just don't, I don't even know how to approach some of this stuff. But as you can tell, don't get me started. <laughs> no, it, it's it's great to hear that you talk about this because you know no one's talking about it, no one's voicing yeah. their opinions, no one's no one's actually saying you know like like look, <laughs> black and white. Yeah, yeah. No, I can't. And you can't say it on on. Uh, I, I, you can't say anything on social media because you know first of all, all of my followers are are like-minded people so you're preaching to the choir and um the few that you know would speak up i would block them anyway but it's just you know there's everything so toxic out there i just don't i just don't want to proliferate all the negativity and everything else i I just want my social media to be upbeat and fun and Mm -hmm. and here i am doing the opposite but i'm kind of pent up obviously about this stuff because it just angers me a lot and i just feel like the the country that we were all yearning and believing in and finally feeling like we were getting somewhere has just Wait. fallen off the cliff. You, you know, we, we are actually, because I did an episode on this about politics. Um, my first episode on season two, but it is talking about like looking at the numbers of the young people that are coming in kids that have gone through all this you know turmoil and whatnot and in our midterm elections majority of the people voting were all young people they're the change and we're the change that we're trying to make is for them and they're coming through and saying you know what we agree with this change you know we we want this change we don't want to go back they already know what it's like to go back there they already gone. You know what? It's, I I agree with you. However, I'm old enough to remember the days of the hippie days and and love and peace and harmony and all of that in the late '60s and um and all of you know it just felt like that youth movement with the Beatles and the Enlightenment and 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 accepting and everything um and that just felt like wow, the young generation is going to take over and we're going to, you know, we're never going to be able to, we're never going to allow ourselves to go back to the old ways. And yet here we are with half of America and 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 half of these people grew up in, the, in that era and it just didn't rub off on them. I don't know what happened. <laughs> it's just like, so I, you know, when I when we say when we paint with brush with broad brush strokes and say that the youth of America is going to save us, I'm a little skeptical. I'm just worried that you know there's going to be a, a big portion of them who will try, but there's also somehow a big portion who somehow grow up where they don't have unconditional love for their fellow human beings and they don't have an open mind about about being different than themselves um they don't have an open mind about the different races or sexual orientation or even even women's rights or you know whatever it is it's like i just i i 
it 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 amazes me that that it that that can still that that I mean it's not things that you are born with. I mean those those ideas you're not born with those. You have to learn. Those have to be yeah. taught. Those have to be learned by example. And so they've been brought up in in households or communities where that is the ideal where white supremacy or whatever it is is uh is being ingrained and brainwashed into them at a very young age and so you know it does it does worry me that you know this is a a problem that's just going to keep on going because i you know there were so many times in my life that i thought we were out of the woods and we are so not out of the woods (laughs) yeah speaking of that according to the hollywood reporter Candace Cameron Bure says that she's going to be focusing on traditional marriage. It's going to be the main focus of great American family holiday movies. As a person who worked with Hallmark, um, how do you, how does that make you feel? Yeah, that was very disappointing. However, um, uh, the, you know, I've directed a lot of Hallmark um, Christmas movies and, and bride movies and things like that and continue to uh, do ones that are, that are picked up by them. And the head, the, the head of Hallmark uh, left the company and formed this new um, com- sort of competing uh, television, you know, network or cable TV, I'm not even sure what it is. And Candace Cameron Burr went with him. She was one of the bigger Hallmark stars. And so they're working together now at a whole nother company. There's a whole, there's an entirely new regime at Hallmark, which I'm very happy to say is much more inclusive and doing some amazing um, strides in, uh, in including um, gay characters in their films there's a they're doing the first um the first christmas movie with a with two gay male leads not just supporting characters they they kind of tiptoed around that for a couple the last two or three years where they would have it would still be the guy and the girl but you know okay one of them's brother is gay and they're coming you know coming home for christmas and that kind of thing and there would be supporting characters that were gay but now um, it's Jonathan Bennett and uh, starring in it, and he's openly a actor himself. I've directed Jonathan uh, in a in a Hallmark Christmas movie called Christmas Made to Order, mm-hmm. where he was playing a straight character. He was playing a straight male lead, and I'm I think it's really exciting that Hallmark is going in the right direction and making these these inclusive decisions. Um, and knowing that a very big part of their audience are um, probably, you know, not there. There's a certainly a large part of the audience that are not going to be terribly happy about that because I think it does appeal to a conservative audience to a degree. But I think that they are on the right side of history and making the decision that it's more important to do the right thing. And I'm incredibly proud of the direction that the current Hallmark regime is going in. And I I applaud them and I think it's gonna be great. Now, as for these going backwards, 
competitor to Hallmark with the old regime, with the old head of Hallmark and Candace Cameron Burr. Um, I wish them luck. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's just, I've, I, I don't know. I've never met Candace. I don't, uh, but everything that I've read and heard about her um, is, is the only word I can say is grotesque. It's just so outrageously homophobic and um, not, you know, if she, if she proclaims to be a religious person, which I believe she does, it's just disappointing that, you know, it just doesn't seem like a Christian thing to do to go around and, and spread hate in the way that she does. And I, I find it quite offensive. And I, um, I know some, it's, it's interesting. I know some uh, gay people who have worked with her on other Hallmark movies when she was, when she used to be a Hallmark star. And they said behind the scenes, she was quite lovely and that she was very nice to the gay people on the set and and whatever. And I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. But, you know, I mean, Hitler might have been nice to a few Jewish people in his life. You know, I mean, I just think it's it's grotesque. I think it's really grotesque. I think it's so hypocritical of her to, you know be nice to the gay boys on set who are, you know, they're trying to be supportive and friendly and then turn right around and just chop them off at the knees by the kinds of things that she use in, in her political life and in, in the statements that she will make. I just, I, I think it's evil. I think it's so horrific. It's just absolutely horrific. There's no way that I could be in the same room with her, that's for sure. And I certainly would not direct anything with, with her ever, 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 ever. Um, I directed Jody Sweeten in two movies this year. Jody played her sister mm -hmm. on Full House. And um, Jody um, has the complete opposite views <laughs> politically and everything. He made a few and, comments about her on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. And good for Jody. Good for Jody for speaking up. And I love Jody. She's she's a fantastic woman and is, you know, she's out on the front lines, too. I mean, she really puts her money where her mouth is. And, you know, she was on the front lines of of, you know, pro women's uh, rights this year with the whole abortion situation. And so much on the front lines, I mean, literally in protests, she got thrown down on video by a policeman, literally thrown to the pavement. And all she was doing was, was in, you know, in a protest in, in a, it, it, it's, you know, she's out there really making a difference. And uh, I think she's just a freaking hero and uh, a rock star. So more power to Jody and, uh, and I hope we get to work with her again because I uh, the two movies I did with her I just absolutely adore her so much. So um, yeah, let let Candace go do her fire breathing homophobic stuff, and 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 the less I see of that, the better. I don't want to stay too much on this topic, but 
even looking at the name um great american family like that name of the company yeah it's, it's it, well you, it's 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 a play on you know make america great again and exactly words, make america white again make america homophobic again make america white premacy again make yeah. america you know it's it's just it's such a blatant tie-in to that whole uh movement it's 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 just absolutely it's sick creep creepazoid and sick it's just truly sick so okay from that we're gonna take a little nap <laughs> we're gonna take a little nap we're gonna calm down yes and- we're gonna calm down and talk about fun stuff <laughs> and we'll be right back Hey, bitches, it's Black Friday at the Jono Shop. Pre-order is available now for my sixth installment to the Book of Jono series titled Solid Autonomy. And I'm introducing the Jono gift card available for Jono photography services that don't expire. You can't go wrong with the Jono gift card. Terms and conditions do apply. And the entire Jono Shop is currently 15 to 25% off. Available now until December 5th, 2022. Jabber listeners get an extended bonus percentage off at checkout using promo code J-A-B-B-R at checkout. Happy holidays. Welcome back, bitches. Okay, so on a lighter note, let's get into yes, Sam's... We've, we've taken a shower and we've cleansed. We've cleansed <laughs> all this toxicity away. What were we thinking? Okay, <laughs> moving right along. Let's give the audience a little, little background about you. Where are you from? Who, where do you call home now? I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina. And I, my dad owned movie theaters, so I was always hanging out at movie theaters from the youngest age and watching movies all the time. I grew up in an era before home entertainment, so before video cassettes, before anything. So if you needed, if you were going to see a movie, you had to watch it in a movie theater or maybe on one of the three TV stations that we had back then. Three, <laughs> ABC, NBC and CBS. And that was it. And they had their regular TV shows during primetime. And so movies might show, you know, they might show a movie of the week or they might show, you know, a feature film here and there. Uh, But you would have to catch them in late night. (laughs) And as a kid, you weren't allowed to stay up late. So it was it was hard to see movies when you were when you were growing up in that era and being able to get in free to the theaters that my dad had and watch movies multiple times and stuff like that was a true blessing. And it really, um, it's, it's what turned me into the person I am today, for sure. When I was eight, we took a trip to California and dad got us into a, a VIP tour of Warner Brothers Studios where I got to walk onto a soundstage where Blake Edwards was directing The Great Race with Natalie Wood, uh, Jack Lemon, Tony Curtis, and Peter Falk. And they were shooting a scene on an iceberg in a gigantic tank of water with two antique cars on the iceberg and wind machines and wave machines. And the eyes just popped right out of my head. And that was the moment I decided I want to direct movies. This is what I want to be doing. I had no idea that that kind of thing could be created in a soundstage. I thought if you were going to have to do that, you'd have to go to the North Pole and wait for a storm. And, you know, I, I it just was unbelievable to me that this was created in Hollywood. And so uh, from then on, I just, you know, took the eight millimeter home movie camera and started making my own little Dracula movies and things with my brother. And then when I was in college, 
I went to the University of South Carolina and majored in media arts, which was their film, their film department. And, uh, and I organized, I was a huge fan of Brian De Palma's early films in, in the days when he was making films like Sisters and Phantom of the Paradise. And uh, I organized a film festival um, in his honor. I managed to get a hold of him in California. He lived in New York, but he was in California casting Carrie. And it was a very famous casting session because he and George Lucas were at the same table reading every young actor in Hollywood for Star Wars and Carrie simultaneously. So everybody that came in to read for a part read a scene from Carrie and they read a scene from Star Wars. Can you imagine? Kill two and, uh, and stone. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when I called up, he happened to be on a break. They put him right on the phone, De Palma I'm talking about. And I told him what we were doing and I wanted him to come to South Carolina. He did. And that's how I met him. And one thing led to another and I ended up being his assistant. And that's how I um, started in the business. And I started working for him in the summers before I even graduated from college. But eventually after I graduated from college, I worked as his assistant on films like Dress to Kill and Fury and that era and, and a lot of pre-production on Blowout. And then um, he had me be the associate producer and production manager of a comedy that he directed called Home Movies that starred Kirk Douglas and Nancy Allen. And um, so I, that, I learned everything about filmmaking from De Palma. I mean, he was a true mentor and, uh, but, a, but really I was learning by observing and being on set and seeing the, the whole creative process of prepping a movie and seeing how he storyboarded everything. It was just every everything I do, even to this very day. I mean, there's not a day that goes by when I'm directing that there aren't 20 things that I learned from De Palma. And um, so then I um, did, I mean, you know, there, there was a few years where I was working in film marketing, trying to pay for a short film that I had directed and written and produced. Uh, and I, when I was doing film marketing, I got sort of sucked into that for a bit and loved designing movie posters, won several awards for that. Um, one, of, one of them I'm really proud of was Paul Verhoeven's The Fourth Man that won the Hollywood Reporter Award for Key Art of the Year and um, things like that. But I was really paying off my credit cards where I had made a short film called Double Negative that had a um, big splash at the Sundance Film Festival. and open theatrically with Martin Scorsese's After Hours and did, you know, it was my calling card to get my directing career going. And I got my first feature film off the ground in 1990 called Guilty as Charged. And it was a horror film about a madman who kidnaps murderers and fries them on his own electric chair. And it starred Rod Steiger, Heather Graham, Lauren Hutton, Isaac Hayes, and Zelda Rubenstein, the little woman from Poltergeist. And, um, and that's what launched my whole directing career. And I've been, you know, plugging away at it for, for directing features and, and television stuff for 32 years now. And just, as I said, finished my 50th film just this past Monday. And, uh, and I did, um, 
you know, things like Elvira's Haunted Hills. I did all three seasons of Dante's Cove, which was a very, very sexy, supernatural, gay, um, witchcraft kind of series. And uh, that was really fun. That was in 2005, six and seven. And um, very sexy stuff. I mean, we had a mandate from Here TV, which was the gay network in which the, it was made for, where we had to have full frontal male nudity in every episode. So there you go. <laughs> and it, it was great fun. Um, and I was one of the producers of a film called Gods and Monsters that you probably heard of that won the Oscar for Best Screenplay. It was directed by Bill Condon. And it was actually about uh, James Whale, the, oh, the the gay director of the original Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. By the way, Bride of Frankenstein is my favorite film of all time. And I've always revered James Whale. And this was a passion project that was based on a novel called Father of Frankenstein by Christopher Bram that was all about James Whale's later years. But there are flashbacks of him directing Bride of Frankenstein. And we have one of those in the film. And we actually recreated the whole laboratory set from Bride of Frankenstein. I made sure that the, everything's done to specification and a perfect recreation. And we tracked down the original electrical equipment that had been used in that original film, which also Mel Brooks also had tracked down and used in Young Frankenstein, which was his homage to those early films, early Frankenstein movies. And um, so it was it was an amazing project. And Sir Ian McKellen played James Whale. Brendan Fraser is in it. Um, Lynn Redgrave. She won the Golden Globe Award for it. And, uh, and Ian McKellen was nominated for Best Actor. And I mean, it was a charmed, really, really charmed project and a and, you know, I'm just really proud that it's, you know, it's one of the one of the great um, gay movies of all time. Um, and it really launched it, it really sent Bill Condon, you know, really blew him up in a much bigger way in his career than ever before. And he just went on to one thing after another. I mean, he wrote Chicago, which won Best Picture. He wrote and directed Dreamgirls, which won an Oscar for Jennifer Hudson. And I mean, just everything he touches is just, you know, amazing. So, and I, I'm just so thrilled and proud for him too. It's amazing. When did you get into writing? I, you know, when I was a kid, I, I started a fanzine on horror films when I was a teenager and I was writing reviews for that. and. Um, and doing the interviews and all that kind of stuff. So I was, I was writing um, from a very young age, and I wrote scripts and things like that. Um, but I eventually, I had, I had written. It got very frustrating because a lot of scripts that I wrote, there were passion projects that didn't get off the ground, or you know, or they went through twenty million rewrites from notes that you would get from different production companies and executives and it became very frustrating for me that I just I'm, I'm too passionate and I'm too married to the words that I've written to keep changing them and um, and so it became soul crushing for me and I decided at a certain point that I love writing too much to have it be so angst written and I decided you know what I'm not going to write films anymore um, it's it's too collaborative a medium. I can't write what I want to write. It's going to be changed. 
and I can't, I can't really handle that emotionally very well. And whereas I can direct, I can direct someone else's script. I can come in and, and be objective and, and I, and I love doing that. And so that's what I do now. I just strictly am a director for hire on projects that are already written, already financed, already gone through development hell. They're all ready to go. And I just come in and direct them. And that's, exactly what I want to do. I want to spend my time directing. I don't want to spend my time work, looking for work. I don't want to spend my time in development hell. I don't want to spend my time rewriting something 20 times over. And so it's perfect for my career to just direct. So what I do for my soul between projects is write things that I have complete control over. And those things are books and magazine articles where the editors will give me carte blanche to do what I want to do without any questions asked, without any changes. Mm-hmm. And I will always agree to, I will always insist on that. And, and, and I don't do it for money. I usually, all my books are done for charity. I give away all the money. And when I write for magazines and things, I don't, um, I usually I either give the money to charity or I or I write them for nothing, and it's it's uh, it's a lab, it's my labor of love and it's what I absolutely adore doing, and um, but I have to do it my way and that's you know and if I'm not going to get paid or I'm giving away all the money it's not a career per se, um, but you know the people uh, who appreciate my work they're happy to give me that carte blanche and they and they know from the work that I've done before that I'm going to come through with something that I've put 10,000% of my heart and soul into. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been great. I mean, I've gotten, you know, like those Elvira interviews, you know, always had carte blanche on that. Another magazine came to me and said, do you want to write about your experience working for De Palma on Dress to Kill? And I said, Yes, I would love that. How many words do you want? And they were like, well, you know, two or 3,000 words would be great. Well, I wrote it and I came back to them and I said, well, it came in at 12,000 words. <laughs> um, I can cut it down, but why, you know, why don't you read it and then see what you think? And they came back to me and said, don't cut a single word. Um, we're going to devote the entire magazine to it. And they did. And it was, you know, it was fantastic. And um and it's going to be the, you know, I, I knew that I wasn't wasting my time uh, writing it so long because I am, gonna, I am, my next book is going to be about my De Palma years. And so that'll be the basis for the chapters on Dress to Kill. So it was all kind of in the back of my mind, you know, kind of groundwork for an eventual book. Um, and the first book that I wrote was uh, a, a legitimate biography of Kay Thompson. It was called Kay Thompson from Funny Face to Eloise. And I was obsessed with the Eloise children's books when I was a kid. My sisters introduced them to me. It's about the little girl who lives at the Plaza Hotel with her mm. nanny and her dog and her turtle. And I wanted to move to New York and live in a hotel. And, you know, and that it was just a fantasy that I absolutely adored as a kid. And then I saw the movie Funny Face, the musical from the 50s, directed by Stanley Donnan that starred Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire. And there was this woman in it who played the fashion magazine editor who was so très chic. And she sings this opening number, Think Inc. And 
oh my God, she's like just this cyclone blowing through that movie. And she literally steals the movie right out from under Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire, which is no small feat. Well, that was Kay Thompson. And when I realized that this is the woman who wrote the Eloise children's books, I just started looking for anything and everything about her. And it turns out that she was this massively influential person behind the scenes. She was the vocal arranger and coach for Judy Garland, who was her best friend. And she became the godmother of Liza Minnelli, who was Judy's first daughter. Um, she, she coached and, and arranged for Frank Sinatra and Lena Horne and all these incredible people. And just the more that I learned about her, it was just amazing. She directed John F. Kennedy's inaugural gala. She, she directed the most influential and important fashion show of the 20th century at the Palace of Versailles, where she had all these major American designers. And it was the moment in which American designers were finally taken seriously on the world stage of fashion, and it changed everything for American designers from that moment on. And um, just everything she did was a game changer. And so I wrote this, um, this biography of her, interviewed 300 people who knew and worked with her. Uh, she was long passed away when I got started. Um, but it, uh, so I never met her in person, unfortunately, in her lifetime. But um, the book just, you know, took on a life of its own. If I had known how much work was going to go into it, I don't think I would have had the audacity to even start it. But um, it just kept exponentially growing. Every person I interviewed said, oh, you're going to need to interview these five people. And um, so it ended up taking uh, over 10 years of research that I was working on, not full-time, because I was also directing projects. It was it was my hobby between projects. But um, then when it was finally ready to get published, I got a literary agent and I said, you know, I'm probably going to need to self-publish this. Nobody knows who Kay Thompson is and they're probably not going to care. And he said, well, let's start with the top publishers and we can work our way down. Well, sent it out to the three top publishers and it got into a bidding war wow. <laughs> and uh, it got picked up by Simon and Schuster. And it was the most, my advance was the most money I've ever made in my life, far exceeding any director fee I've ever gotten. Uh, Liza Minnelli got so excited. She, she ended up uh, re doing a recreation of Kay Thompson's 1950s nightclub act and did it as a Broadway um Broadway show at the Palace Theater. It was called Liza's at the Palace, but it was really Kay Thompson is at the Palace, played by Liza Minnelli. Mm -hmm. And um, it won the Tony, and I, I worked on it as the historical consultant, and it won the Tony Award for wow, Best Theatrical awesome. Event of the Year. And that was happening all at the time that the book came out. The book uh, got excerpted in Vanity Fair, and Hillary Knight, who had written, I'm sorry, Hillary Knight, who had who had done all of the illustrations for the Eloise books, who's still with us. Um, he he do, did a, drew a drawing of me reading my K. Thompson book to Eloise um, that, was, um, that was published in Vanity Fair. And, you know, it was just this charmed, incredible journey that, um, that uh, you know, just could never be topped. It was that, it was that lightning strikes once kind of thing. And, uh, and it was just monumental.
And then what so year was that? that was uh, it came out in uh, 2010. So it was about 12 years ago now. Okay. And um, so uh, flash forward to the pandemic, I got back into really seriously wanting to do some writing because I was not doing any directing. And uh, I had this idea when, remember when the shutdown first happened, uh, there was a toilet paper shortage, which made no sense because toilet paper had nothing to do at all with COVID, but suddenly everybody, there, there was a run on toilet paper and you couldn't find toilet paper. So I thought it was so hysterical uh, that I decided to do a pair of children's book parody called Sam's Toilet Paper Caper. There you have one. <laughs> and uh, it, um, it's like a parody of those little golden books that we all read as kids. Mm -hmm. And I have this great friend named Dan Gallagher, who's a cartoonist. And I called him up and I said, would you be interested in doing the illustrations for this parody of a little golden book? And he was like, oh, Oh my God, that's always been on my bucket list. I've always wanted to do a little golden book and this is perfect. And so we did it in, in record time. And I was like, my experience with Simon and Schuster and bigger publishers is that, you know, they have their release schedule and they work on a slower timetable. And, you know, if they're going to sign you to something, your book might not come out for two or three years. This was something that needed to come out now. Um, it had an expiration date on just the subject matter. And so we put this book together in five weeks. I got the idea on April Fool's Day of 2020, which was right after the, the shutdown. And we had it out in uh, May 15th. And I self-published through Amazon, which um, is print on demand. And you think print on demand, oh gosh, it's going to take two weeks when you order it or something like that. No, it takes about two days. Yeah. And they print the book in the closest printer to where you buy it. So, and if you're in Germany and you buy it, it's going to be printed at a printing press in Germany and shipped to you local rates. I mean, they, it's the, it's just an incredible division that they have and it doesn't cost anything. I mean, you know, you have to, you have to pay the costs or do it yourself of designing the book and getting the files ready and everything. But when you upload it, it doesn't cost you anything. Amazon just will charge you. They'll tell you exactly what their costs are going to be and their, yeah. their profit margin and all that. They're, it's going to be, we're going to pay you this amount for the book. You can mark it up to whatever price you want to charge that the market can bear. And you will get royalties from the first sale on Amazon. I mean, it's it's like the best kept secret. I can't believe everybody's not writing yeah. a book right now. It's so incredible. And, and they costs, ship it. Yeah, they they do all the fulfillment. I mean, you don't have to do anything. You they ship it. If you have Prime, it comes. You know, it's shipped for free. I mean, it's unbelievably great. Um, so I fell in love with that idea and i named my my uh publishing arm knuckle sandwich books <laughs> sandwich is the name of my followers sandwiches um we had a little contest on social media uh, you know to parody you know i'm a, I'm a legend in my own mind and i we've you know my followers suggested that i should have a name like real celebrities do for their followers, like, you know, Lady Gaga's Little Monsters and Barry Manilow's Fanilow's. And, but my favorite is Benedict Cumberbatch. His followers are Cumberbitches, 
Well, <laughs> my mine is Sam Witches, and Witches spelled W-I-T-C-H-E-S because of my horror um, fanaticism. And uh, so I, you know, with tongue in cheek, uh, call my followers Sam Witches. And so I've named my my world domination publishing arm Sam. Uh, it's it's called Knuckle Sandwich Books. And uh, but it's just you know it's it's just basically self-publishing through Amazon and and I love it and I did a novel during the pandemic called Orbgasm, which there was this really cool photographer I forget his name uh, who shot the cover for it. Oh wait a minute, that was you, Jono, wasn't it? Was. It? <laughs> what? How could I forget? <laughs> yes, Jono did the most amazing cover for this book. Uh, you got to see it, and um, it's an it's an uh, a, a pulp sci-fi. It's a pulp erotic sci-fi satiricon, and it's um it's about an orb that falls from Earth into the backyard of this woman who is a James Bond starlet and she has cancer and the exposure to this orb immediately cures her cancer she takes it to her gay best friend who has um early parkinson's and it immediately eradicates his tremors and they are they just realize that they have this miracle cure for anything and everything and she wants to take it to her father who is dying of alzheimer's but the men in the men in black the government agents show up and they want this orb. And so she and her gay best friend have to hit the road with the orb uh, and to escape the government from, from confiscating it. And it becomes kind of like a Thelma and Louise or Thelma and Lewis on the road um, trying to get this thing to her dad before it's taken away from them. And it's an exciting kind of road trip but also one of the side effects of the orb is that it makes everyone really, really horny. So it gets very, very, very sexy. And it's not gratuitous because there we find out uh, that there's a reason for this. And it all um, it all ties together in the end. And uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty fun ride. It was a script that I wrote. It's one of those passion projects that didn't get off the ground. And I've been sitting in a drawer for a long time. And because it's about cures of diseases, I just thought with the pandemic going on that everybody's everybody's got that on the brain again. And uh, I had actually written it during the time when AIDS was still an incurable disease and people were dying right and left. It's what inspired me to write it. And uh, so when I felt that again during the pandemic with so many people dying, I just thought, okay, now's the time to pull out this script and do something with it. And I decided I could write it as a novel the way that I wanted to do it and to, you know, really explore the sexuality aspects of it in a, in a no holds barred way. And, uh, and it was just so much fun. So I wrote that and put it in self-published, and that's that's been very gratifying. Both books, um, Sam's Toilet Paper Caper and Orgasm, I gave 100% of the profits to the World Health Organization COVID-19 Fund. And, um, and so now my fourth book is I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter, which just came out. And uh, that one, um, all the profits, as I said, go to the Trevor Project. 
so anyway, that's I I just I love writing and I will always do it and but it's got to be on my own terms and and the way that I want to do it. Like any artist. Like yeah. It, yeah. It, it it comes from a, a special place and the way that you want your artwork to be presented, that's that that's amazing. Then that should be yeah. applauded and definitely looked upon as like how everyone's artwork should be seen or read or you know like processed because when it's true to its form then that's when it's it's becomes unique and becomes its own style and whatnot yeah and my voice can really shine through and and it's it's my voice when i'm directing movies it's a collaboration you know the script is written by somebody else you got the producers you've got actors who bring their own thing to the table you have production designers, you got cinematographers, you know, every there, there's, it's just a, a whole community of artists and it's a collaborative medium. And it's not in most cases, it's not your own money. Um, and there are business aspects and, and got to make your money back and you got to do yeah. things sometimes to fit a formula. You've got to have censored things that, you know, it's just, it's a lot of, of external um, you know, parameters, um, and obstacles and whatnot that, that are, you know, it's just a very different situation. And it's, I look at my directing career as a career, as something that I do where I earn my living, but I also have, I've, I've, I've found the, the avenue in which I have the most fun. I absolutely, you know, love the actual process of directing and so I have a great time doing it. I'm, I'm not in any way saying that I don't, but it's just, you know, it's a different thing. It's, it's, you have to satisfy a lot of people, um, you know, a whole committee of people have to go, okay, that's good. Or, you know, I don't have final cut on these things. I'll give my director's cut and they can fiddle around with it. And I kind of walk away and they can do whatever they want. It's their money. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. And, but ultimately, I mean, you know, most of the time when I see the film, the final film, I can barely tell the difference for my director's cut. So I haven't really been, you know, I don't have a lot of the horror stories that some directors will tell you about their film being butchered and that kind of stuff. I, I haven't really had that. I mean, I kind of know what they're looking for going into it. And I don't try to, you know, rock the boat and deviate too far afield the way maybe some some directors who are less disciplined might try to do and then are shocked and appalled when, you know, the studio or the executives are not seeing it that way. You know, well, it's kind of like, well, you've got to you got to read the room, you know, <laughs> yeah. you got to know. Otherwise, you are going to have your soul truly crushed. And um so I do think that there's a responsibility for directors when it's not their money to make sure they're listening to the to you know the rules of the of the game and if you're not playing that game then you're not a responsible director and I wouldn't want to invest my money in a director who isn't going to play by the rules you know I just I find it really arrogant and irresponsible if you've got your own checkbook and you can do you can write the check and it's your money great more power to you but 
I, I find it irresponsible when I hear about, you know, directors going wildly over budget and doing, you know, just wildly over, you know, they, they, they're supposed to deliver a 90 minute movie and their movie is, you know, six hours and they're, you know, just things like that are just like, what, what kind of universe are you in? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's just weird to me. I'm very, very, very disciplined as a director. I go in with everything planned out. I, I publish my shot lists to every single person from the producer down to the production assistant. So everybody knows exactly what we're doing. There's no surprises. Um, and I make my days. I mean, I almost never go beyond 12 hours. And if I do, it's three minutes beyond 12 hours. And I many, many, many times will finish early on, on the shooting every day. In fact, I would say a vast majority of the days I finish early because, you know, I'm just, and production just love me because of that. They're able to know that they're going to bring in this, their films on budget and on schedule. And that's why I'm doing seven films in 11 months because, um, you know, I'm, I'm a responsible director. And I think that's an important, uh, I think that's an important commodity in this business. And professional because you're able to keep true to your word and yeah. deliver. And, uh, and it commands, I command a lot of respect for it, but I also like to have fun. And I make my sets as fun as I can possibly make them and treat everybody as family. And if we, you know, we all wanted, we all wanted to grow up and make movies and we're living the dream people. So if we can't have a good time, then what's the point? And I do, I'm a fashionista. So, you know, at the end yes. of each week, we always have fashion day. On this last film, we had three, um, three fashion days. We had camouflage day. We had had leopard day and then we had pajama day <laughs> and i, I was gonna say give... you you definitely have your own sense of personal style and and, and I, I, <laughs> sometimes i don't even see you there sometimes with the camouflage you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly I, my nickname has become captain samouflage because uh, i do wear quite a bit of sam of camouflage and uh it is kind of a little bit of a fetish, I guess. It's funny when I look back at photos, I found one of of my husband and I uh, with RuPaul in 1996 at a signing of one of his record albums at, at Virgin Records, when it used to be up at the corner of Sunset and and uh, Crescent Heights, and mm -hmm. um, and he was, you know, we were we we're there, and it was Halloween, and we were dressed. It was right after the don't ask, don't tell uh, policy had come out with the military for, yeah. for LGBTQ people. And so Gary, my husband, he had served in the Navy. So he was wearing his sailor, his actual sailor suit. And I was decked out in camouflage, of course. Um, and we had little name tags printed up where um, his said, don't ask. And mine said, don't tell. <laughs> and I remember RuPaul just howling at that when we got up to meet him and get our, you know, CD signed. And, uh, and we have the, we have a picture of us there, but I mean, as far back as, as 1995, I was wearing camouflage. So yeah, that's, it's, it's one of my favorite things. It's a signature. But I do like, I do like fashion. Um, it's, 
it's interesting. It's it's a form of drag, I guess. Uh, you could look at it that way. When I hear drag queens talk about how it's so empowering um, when they take on that persona, I feel the same way when I get really outlandishly dressed up and go out. And it's, it's you know, I, I guess it's, I mean, it's a little, it's a, I guess there's some femininity to some of it. And so there is that part of me, I guess, but it's more, it's just, it's a, I don't know. It's just a fashion thing. I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's weird. I don't, I don't have the urge to like, um, I, I don't think I have the urge to like put on a wig and makeup and take it to that level. And I've thought about it a lot and I've thought, you know, am I a closeted drag queen? No, I'm really, it's, I, in, in all honesty, that's not the, that's not the, the, um, underlying kind of motivation. It's just, I just want to look outlandish, I guess. I don't know. It's weird. It's a weird thing, but I, and I, I didn't always explore it. I had put on some weight um, a few years ago and kind of let myself go. And then I decided to finally get, get back into shape and I lost 75 pounds and I've kept it off. Thank God. Congratulations. Thank you. And but when I lost all that weight, um, somebody said, you know, are you keeping your old clothes? And I'm like, well, of course I am. I mean, I've, I'll probably like I always do with yo-yo dieting. I'll probably, you know, go back up. So I have I have jeans and like three different sizes, you know, and, and and they're like, that's your first mistake. You need to you need to throw out everything to have those bigger clothes in your closet is just going to give you the temptation that you have that as a crutch. If you start to put on weight again, that you'll have the clothes there. So I literally emptied my closets of every single thing I owned wow. and started to build a new wardrobe with my with the size that I had gotten down to. And I decided to buy some nice clothes and I decided to buy clothes that were colorful and and I suddenly was feeling so I just my self-confidence and everything was was on such a high because I was able it just, it, it was a rebirth or not even a rebirth. It was a birth. It was just like, wow, I'm having so much fun being outrageous with the clothes that I wear and, you know, things like fezes or just, I mean, just, you know, just exploring nutty, nutty and, and very loud colors and, and fashionable things to do. And, um, and I just and I just loved it. So I embraced it and with a vengeance and just started, you know, and now it's like, oh, my God, I can't I can't possibly put on weight because I've spent all this money on these clothes that I that I must fit into. And uh, so it's given me great motivation just to stay uh, to stay trimmer. And um, so that's all been fun. And but I but I it, but my followers now expect it. Like if I do convention appearances, I have to wear a new a new thing every day and i have to post about it like what is what is sam wearing today at the convention appearance and um it's just become a, a thing and i and i it's all tongue in cheek and just silly but i love it it's just it's it's really fun so i enjoy it too oh and by the way i should mention um i'm doing a signing of 
I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter, my new book, um, in Los Angeles, in Burbank, actually, at Dark Delicacies on uh, right after the new year on January 7th, which is a Saturday at 6 p.m. That's January 7th of 2023, in case you're listening to this um, archived. And uh, it's a reading uh, and a Q&A and a signing of my new book. And the reason I thought of that is because I'm already trying to figure out what the hell am I going to wear to that to blow people's minds. So <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like preparing for the red carpet or something. I've got to come up with 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 something outlandish and, and fun. So, yeah, um, you got to come out if you're local or, or you know, in, Cal- in California around that time. You got to come. <laughs> yeah, I'll be there. Yay. Um, you know, like how, speaking of RuPaul. RuPaul does say that, you know, we're born naked and the rest is drag. So like, so that's true. just, that's just you, you know, yeah. that's just you being you. And yeah. I think that that's something that people recognize and they get excited to see you in your, in your form of drag, you know? Well, I, I appreciate it. It's certainly, I do feel that it's another, another form, an art, another artistic expression, you know, yeah. and and I enjoy doing it. I just get the biggest kick out of it. And it's something that that I didn't, you know, that, I, that I've explored just in the last few years and have gotten such rewarding feeling from it. And um, yeah, I just I, it, it's it's hard to explain. And I, I do think about it a lot. I, I analyze it a lot in context with the whole way in which um, drag and and the fluidity of, of everything that's going on in our community, especially with all kinds of new words that we're all getting used to and new concepts that we're all getting used to. And, and I'm somewhere on that crazy spectrum and maybe there isn't a word for where I'm at yet either. And there, maybe there will be in a few years from now, but, um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I identify as gay, um, but I was married to a woman, a woman for six years before I met my husband. My husband and I have been together for 40 years and counting. Um, and, you know, I had a, a real honest, well, I, honest is probably the wrong word because I was messing around with guys, but I had a real relationship with a woman. It wasn't, I wasn't faking it. I enjoyed having sex with women. Um, so there is a tiny bit of bisexuality, I guess, in there. I haven't explored it in 40 years. So it's hard for me to think that I, of, of saying that I, I, I wouldn't feel, um, I wouldn't feel that it would be hundred percent honest to claim that I'm a bisexual person. Although in some definitions, I guess it might be, I just think that Primarily, I am gay and primarily attracted to men. Um, but, you know, there's a there's a tiny percentage of bisexuality still lingering there. Um, and then when I think about, you know, gosh, I just I mean, just on this film that I just completed, there was. Um, some non-binary people on the crew. There were there was a um, a uh, I, uh, God. I have to really 
be careful of the terminology because again, we're all getting used to this. There was a, um, well, a trans person on the crew. Um, I had to figure out everybody's pronouns. I mean, it's it's tricky, and you you know we're all invested in wanting to do the right thing and say the right thing and be inclusive and everything else. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's an adjustment, and we're all you know we're all learning together and 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 working our way through this as delicately and as positively and um, lovingly as as possible. But it's just so interesting because in my era, you know, the all the all gays are here. You know, everything was so black and white. You know, it was yeah. like you were either straight or you were gay. I mean, they were like, okay, just make a choice. And people who were bisexual were like made fun of because, you know, oh, brother, you can't have it both ways. You've got to make a choice. And you're just, you know, if you're saying you're bisexual, but you're really gay and you just haven't come to terms with it and you're trying to be in this gray area. I mean, that's how people were looked at back in in earlier times. And I just find it really refreshing and fascinating and so interesting at the the way in which there are so many flavors now and um, an infinite number of flavors and an infant and and we're still we still don't have enough vocabulary words for all those infinite number of flavors and mm-hmm. you know it's a little of this it's a little of that and it's like all these recipes of 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 um, you know soups <laughs> what all the all these different ingredients that everybody is is slightly different and and i do i do feel that i the way in which i've embraced this whole sort of fashionista thing is a f- some sort of branch of drag and you know, I'm st- I'm still figuring out. So you know, I don't know what it what it is. I don't think it's I don't think it's um, I don't I you know I don't have that urge to be a woman or a different sex. There's there's not that aspect of it, but there's the actual dressing up thing is a big part of it. I when I was writing in the book, and I write about this in the book. I did a, um, when I was very young, at summer camp, they did a play of a circus, it was called Circus, and I played the ringmaster. And I was probably, I don't know, 10, 11 years old or something, and getting dressed in these red jodhpur pants and a black, short, um, kind of, tuxedo jacket kind of thing but it was very short and angular and wearing white gloves and having a whip that I would snap on the ground and a bullhorn in my other hand and a a big hat to a big you know um a tall black um what do you call it a top hat I mean I definitely felt empowered. I mean, my Lord, I, I still can feel that feeling to this day of what it was like. And I kind of trace back my fashionista and fetishy thing and, and all of it, you know, to that moment. I mean, I just remember putting on those white gloves and just feeling my fingers stretching in them and, 
and getting out there in front of a crowd and um, performing, it was, you know, that was a big. It's empowering. Yeah, it really was. It really, really was. And I think that, that it's an, that what I do now is an extension of that, but it was still very, it was rooted in, in a certain, certain amount of masculinity. I mean, you know, it wasn't like, um, you know, ultra, super ultra butch, but it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't leaning into, you know, a, the drag queen world of, of dressing up as a woman either. It wasn't, a, uh, wasn't in that direction. It was just really, you know, taking the, the red pant, you know, the red jodhpurs, the, the whip, these little extra, you know, things. It was just, it was, it's definitely exactly what I'm up to now. I could, I could <laughs> definitely, being, I could definitely relate. I, I have like my own little person, my, well, my persona. Um, I, you do. No, I, you're I, just, as, you're, you're as much of a fashionista more so than I am. I mean, you, you have your own thing going on and it's and you got it going on (laughs) (laughs) i i love to wear heels to events and i've been doing i've been doing it for forever since i was a kid i remember my mom would um yeah my mom yours yours veers veers off into a little bit more of mixing in the the femininity i think a little more than more so than i do i love to it's especially like um events like drag con i'm able to go full force with it and just do it you know walking around in my heels and leather and studs and everything yeah. and it, it's it's fun and it's in like how i said it's empowering because it really it's, it's it's um it just feels right yeah, yeah. <laughs> as a kid i would get my mom's heels and just walk around the house and just do hang, <laughs> hanging out so it dates and, back to that there you yeah, go and, and mom would just be like oh, okay okay <laughs> it's cool you know and she she was just very accepting of it but like as a kid i i would i would be doing that at, at just hanging out at the house and just walking around yeah. on mom's heels and and it wasn't just well, like one or two times that it would happen it it, it was an ongoing thing <laughs> yeah 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 well when i went i went to rupaul's drag con and uh when when Elvira had a booth there and I was hanging out mm-hmm. with her a bit and I dressed up in a bunch of um, leopard stuff. I have, yeah. I have a lot of leopard. That's why I'm wearing and, this today. <laughs> yeah, I, listen, I think I have the exact same one. <laughs> <laughs> now we're twins. You know, yeah. People can't see us, but we both have our leopard hats, on, our leopard baseball caps. But um, anyway, um, I you know, had this whole leopard ensemble, leopard shoes, leopard everything. And uh, and I walked by this booth and they were selling fans and there was a big leopard fan. Oh, mm-hmm. I grabbed that thing faster than you could. <laughs> I mean, it was like, wow. And I started, I'd never really used a fan and I had never really snapped them. Holy shit. I was like snapping away like, what? what? And it's commanding it, that attention. It was so, I know. I mean, oh my God. It got so much attention and it was empowering. It was like a whip. It was, it really took me back to the days of playing that ringmaster with the whip. It just mm-hmm. was like that snapping noise was empowering. And oh man, I love that thing. And uh <laughs> so yeah, when I when when you know when an event um is 
you know outrageous or fancy enough i'll 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 bring i'll bring in the fan that'll that that is definitely part of it <laughs> so much fun all righty sam we're coming to the tail end of our episode um, where can our listeners find your work? My new book, I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter, is available on Amazon in hardback and paperback. And by the time you hear this, or very shortly after, uh, in early December of 2022, the audiobook will be released as well on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. And, uh, and you kind of need both because... Uh, the visuals in the book, there's, as I say, 600 photographs that you're, and I talk about a lot of them. A lot of them are, are pictures from my crazy um, childhood and youth. Uh, so you need the visuals, but you also need to hear me and all of the guest stars like, like Elvira and stuff uh, reading the book to you. So I highly recommend both. And all the profits of all editions go to The Trevor Project. And then my movies, um, I'll be having a bunch of movies coming out next year because I've been directing seven in a row since the pandemic. I you can tell a you the title. Festival of all of them. Yes, I know. <laughs> they're all ironically, they're all romantic comedies. I okay. guess that's the, that's what people want right now. And uh, I wish I knew the titles. They're all in flux. They're all changing. So you'll just have to look at my IMDb page and uh, to keep up with what's happening. Um, if you see. Uh, I did two with Jody Sweeten, so uh, not the not her Christmas film. She has a Christmas film coming out, but I did two romantic comedies with her um, this year. So if you see her name attached to a romantic comedy, it's probably one of mine. Sweet. Anything else you want to plug? No pun intended. <laughs> What's his name? Okay, let's see. Um, well, no, I think we I think we pretty much covered it. <laughs> What's your Instagram handle? Uh, it's Sam underscore Irvin, I-R-V-I-N underscore director. And you can also find me on Facebook just under my name, Sam Irvin. And uh, I kind of, I'm, I'm an old, I'm an old guy. I kind of like Facebook better, but I <laughs> duplicate all my, uh, all, all my posts on Instagram. The problem with Instagram, sometimes I write longer posts and they have a limit so yeah you'll you'll see the the uncut version on facebook and sometimes a truncated version on instagram sweet well thank you so much for coming by and sharing such great all about your career new stuff that you have coming out and hopefully you get to come back soon I would love it. I always love hanging with you, Jono. It's it's always a pleasure. Oh, it's always a pleasure hanging out with you, Sam. Alrighty, guys. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. <laughs> this is Jabber Podcast, executive produced by John Madison. If you have a question, comment, topic, or story you want to share, we want to hear it. Email jabbrpod at gmail.com or send us a DM on Instagram or Twitter at jabberpod. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Stories and mentions are not meant to hurt anyone or their subtitle parties. Intro and outro, LA Step by We. <laughs>